Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. It's a big week for the Supreme Court and the country. I'm Natalie Moore, and for Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. The Supreme Court is getting ready to decide on several major cases this week, from affirmative action to voting rights to student loan forgiveness. Today, we're going to talk you through what you need to know about those and how they could affect you. Stephen Schwinn is a professor at University of Illinois Chicago Law School. Stephen, let's start with affirmative action. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor held that majority opinion back in 2003. Talk about the case that brought it to their attention. So this is a case that actually came from the University of Michigan Law School. Their race-based affirmative action program considered race as one of a number of different factors in admissions to the law school. And the idea here was that by increasing racial diversity, the school is also increasing ideological diversity and contributing to the educational mission of the school. So fast forward to today. There are two programs that are under fire today one from the University of North Carolina, the other from Harvard. Both of these schools use race, much like the University of Michigan Law School used it way back in 2003. That is, they use it as one factor among many in a kind of holistic review of applicants for admission. And the idea behind these programs, again, is to increase ideological diversity, seeing race as kind of a proxy for ideological diversity in the classroom. And the idea is that we're contributing to the overall educational mission of the school by increasing that ideological diversity. Now, race-based affirmative action, as we know, has been under fire for a long, long time. And so these cases put the issue to the Supreme Court and ask the question, should the court overturn that 2003 ruling that allowed race-based affirmative action? When I hear about these cases, I also think about the 1978 Bach case, in which the Supreme Court ruled that racial quotas was unconstitutional, but affirmative action was constitutional in some circumstances. Does that case at all have any impact or influence on what we're seeing today? It does, Natalie. It's a fantastic question. What that case said, or at least the, the, the leading opinion in that case said, is that schools can use race as one factor among many in a holistic assessment of individual applicants. But what, case, what schools cannot do is use quotas, for example, by race or grant points by race. They can't have a kind of rigid race-based program that would say, you know, for example, 25% of our class has to be people of color. Something like that would be illegal, even by today's standards. And so these programs use race, but they use it in a very, very minor way. It's hard to emphasize how, how little they use it in assessing candidates for qualification for the school. And again, it's part of this kind of holistic assessment. What's on the chopping block today is that even that use of race might go away entirely. I mentioned that Justice O'Connor wrote the majority opinion on the decision in 2003. What reasons did she give? Well, what she said is that schools can make a decision. 
whether they want to use race to increase the ideological diversity of their class to contribute to the educational mission of the school. The idea here is that we all benefit from diversity. And one of those, one of the kinds of diversities that we benefit from is race diversity. So by having a kind of racially diverse class, we're all learning how to work with people from different backgrounds, from different races, from different cultures, and that's preparing us better for the real world. She wrote in her opinion that, quote, the court expects that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today, end quote. Do you think the court would agree with that? Well, I think the court is definitely moving in that direction if it already hasn't moved in that direction. And Natalie, what I mean by this is in the court's race-based decisions, even outside of affirmative action, the court's been moving toward a racially colorblind view of the Constitution. What that means is that the court has been disapproving almost any government use of race for almost any purpose in recent terms. How that translates to affirmative action, I think what the court's likely to say in these cases is that the government can't use any kind of race in order to assess admission qualifications for students. I don't know if you've been following this angle, but what's been fascinating to me is how some Asian students feel like they are being co-opted in this affirmative action, like, oh, there are not enough Asians and you're discriminating against us. But that's really not the case, right? The racial politics of, the, of this are just really, really interesting, Natalie. And so the idea is that r- Asian uh, Americans have been admitted to these institutions at a higher rate in recent years and recent decades. And so they they then have said, well, race-based affirmative action today is actually working to our disadvantage. Now, there's a split as to whether that's true and, and whether, you know, sort of what that means in higher education admission. Um, is it true that Asian Americans are at a disadvantage because of race-based affirmative action? Well, that's hotly disputed, and uh, I don't actually think that's going to be a part of the ruling in the case. I don't think the court's going to consider that because I think that this court really wants to go after race-based affirmative action, and I think the way the court's going to do that is just to go right to the jugular and say race-based affirmative action is unconstitutional. doesn't matter why. doesn't matter who it hurts. The identification of people by race, that's what's unconstitutional. Any idea who you think might issue the majority opinion this time? Well, so the good money on this, I think, is on Justice uh, Thomas. And the reason why is because he's been a longtime critic of race-based affirmative action. Interestingly, and for, for our listeners, you're smiling, and interestingly, he's the first to say that he benefited from race-based I affirmative know. action in his own education, yeah. right? For Yale, right? Yeah, for Yale. And, uh, and what he says about this is... That actually, that actually did him a disservice as a student. And he sees this as a disservice for other black students and other students of color. Well, let's move from affirmative action to something else with college. 40 million student borrowers are waiting to hear about the status of President Biden's student debt relief program. The plan would forgive up to $20,000 worth of debt for qualifying borrowers. Why does this fate hang in the balance? So the Biden administration issued this debt relief under an act called the HEROES Act that Congress enacted 
in order to deal with national emergencies. It gave the federal government emergency authority to take certain actions to deal with national emergencies. The Biden administration picked that up and said, well, look, COVID's a national emergency that's had an economic impact on individuals and in particular student loan borrowers. And so what the Biden administration said is we're going to forgive up to $20,000 for qualifying borrowers under federal student loan programs under this HEROES Act because people were adversely affected in their finances because of COVID. Now, that didn't sit well with some states and some individual borrowers who said, well, look, we're not part of the program. We want to be part of the program. And so we're going to sue to be a part of the program. What they're arguing is that the HEROES Act doesn't actually authorize the federal government to do this. The HEROES Act authorizes the government to ensure that people won't be put in a worse position financially than they would have been but for the disaster. And what the opponents of the program are saying is that the program is actually putting people in a much better position than they would have been without COVID. And so that's really the core of the challenge here. What is the price tag for the program? Well, uh, we don't know exactly, but it's significant. And that's part of the calculus in the case. So the Supreme Court in a couple of environmental cases recently, totally different topic, but relevant here because the Supreme Court in those cases has said that when Congress is trying to do something really big, really important, that has important political or economic significance, that Congress has to be clear in its authorization to the executive branch to take action. So part of what's going on in this case is the question, is, is, is the HEROES Act clear enough to authorize the Biden administration to undertake this ginormous program with huge political and economic significance? Why are justices against the program? What, what are their concerns? What they're concerned about is uh, really a kind of separation of powers concern. And the idea is that um, when Congress is delegating authority to the executive branch, the justices want to be sure that Congress is actually taking responsibility for the authority that the executive branch is using. What that means in this particular case is that the justices that may be opposed to this are thinking, you know, the HEROES Act might not delegate with enough specificity the authority to the executive branch to take this enormous action. And we don't want unelected bureaucrats in the executive branch to make this kind of major, major decision without clear authorization from Congress. So we talked about what could be coming down the pike. But there have also been some decisions this month that are uh, pretty newsworthy, to say the least. Justice Amy Coney Barrett gave one um, recently on um, Holland versus Breakin. Remind us what that's about. This was a stunning decision. It's called the Indian Child Welfare Act. This is a federal law that maybe many people haven't heard of, but it's been under fire in recent years. The idea here is that in adoptions— of Native American Indians, using the language of the act, of Native American Indians, that preference is given to other members of that child's tribe or other members of the Native American Indian community generally over non-members. What that means is that if a non-member sought to adopt a Native American Indian child, that in that adoption, the preference would go to a member of the child's tribe 
or a member of the Native American community more generally, and they could actually step in and hold up an adoption by a non-tribe member in order to exercise that preference. Now, this has been under fire for many, many years. People that don't like this kind of preference, they call it a race-based preference. People that don't like this kind of preference have been arguing that the federal government doesn't have authority to do this for a number of different reasons. They lack authority to regulate family matters. The federal government lacks authority to regulate tribal relations, even that this is an infringement upon state sovereignty. The Supreme Court rejected all of those arguments in this decision, and it was just stunning that it did so. A number of folks, including me, were thinking that the Supreme Court might strike this preference in the Indian Child Welfare Act, but they didn't. They went the exact opposite direction in an opinion authored by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. It was surprising. And I think the language that they use that, of course, this is a race issue, but the way that it's worded is that it's not a race issue. It's a sovereign issue. It's a sovereign issue. That's exactly right. And that was that was part of the core of the case. Is this a race-based preference and a race-based kind of discrimination? Or is it a sovereign slash political kind of preference? Now, that really matters for constitutional law and the authority that Congress has. And the court leaned toward the political side of it. Do you think that that decision could give us a glimpse how the court might rule on student debt relief? Oh, it's really hard to say. Um, There are some signals that the court has given that may translate into a court ruling on student debt relief. And ICWA is one of them, the Indian Child Welfare Act. The other one that I'm looking at, Natalie, is a ruling that came down last week upholding a Biden administration preference in immigration enforcement. This was a challenge by a couple of states that said, look, the Biden administration isn't sufficiently enforcing immigration law. The Biden administration issued some uh, priorities in how they were going to enforce the law because the administration said, look, we have about 11 million unauthorized non-citizens in the country, and we don't have nearly the amount of money and resources to enforce against all of those individuals. What the Biden administration did, like other administrations of both political parties going back 27 years, is to say, given our lack of resources, we have to prioritize enforcement. And we're going to prioritize enforcement against uh, alleged terrorists, against criminals, and against other really kind of hardcore uh, non-citizens. A couple of states didn't like that, so they sued. And the Supreme Court last week ruled that those states don't have what we call standing, that they weren't sufficiently harmed to bring a case against the Biden administration's enforcement priorities in federal court. Now, if we think about that ruling and the Indian Child Welfare Act ruling, as you suggest, that may translate into the court's reasoning in the student loan case. So we could find out more this week, possibly even into early July, right? It's quite possible. We'll see what the court does. They, they're going to issue opinions tomorrow and perhaps later this week and maybe into July. Well, we'll be watching Stephen Schwinn, a professor at University of Illinois Chicago Law School. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Natalie. This episode was produced by Brenda Ruiz and edited by Ethan Schwab. 
Want more Reset on the go? Sign up for our free newsletter. Go to wbez.org slash Reset News to sign up. We'll have a new conversation for you tomorrow morning. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.